good. Good to see everybody here. I think we have a few more people than we did last week. Last week was a little bit of a low crowd, but hey, that's all right. I know we have a lot of people joining us online. Before we get started tonight, I know midweek comes and there's always something going on uh, in, in our life that we could really just use uh, support and prayer. So if you have a need tonight, if you just slip up your hand, anybody online, if you just comment, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, whatever it is tonight, I just want you to be encouraged that I hope you saw all the, all the hands in the room. We're, we're all going through something. And I know that might not seem encouraging, but just know that we're all struggling together. And that's what it means to be, to be the church. You know, we come together, we bring our burdens, we carry them together, but we lift each other up in faith. It's not just about coming together and complaining, but we really believe that God's going to do something as we join together, whether you're here in person or online. So as we pray tonight, let's just believe that God's really going to intervene and show up and do something incredible, and not just our lives, but the lives of the community around us. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this incredible evening for us to come together and study your word. I, I, I pray that you would help us to never take that lightly that we would remember that this is a privilege that we've been given to be in a nation where we can do this without fear of persecution. I thank you for that. I pray that tonight as we dig into the word, that you would just open it up, open our hearts, prepare our hearts to hear your word tonight. And whatever's going on in each person's life, whether it be big, small, whatever it might be, you care about it. You're right there in the midst of it. You're not some far off God just watching, seeing how things go, but you really are in the midst of our lives making things better. We pray that you would just continue to, to be with us and bring us peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Mike is not here again tonight. Uh, he had asked me to do three weeks, so I did last week, tonight, and then next week. Uh, he is uh, suffering for the Lord in Cabo, so we will pray for him, and uh, he's on a missions uh, outing. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but uh, I know it's there, and it's going to be a good thing. It'll be good to have him back in a couple weeks. But he asked me to step in for a couple of, uh, of, of weeks, a few weeks. He asked me to do three, and initially I was going to do a series on prayer. And for whatever reason, I really struggle with series. I don't know why. Uh, I just really struggle to sit down and come up with something systematic, have no issue with it as far as I think they're fine to do. They're just not really for me. So I, I'm doing kind of a series, but instead it's going to be three sermons on the same topic, but not really in a series which really frustrated our secretary because she was trying to figure out how to do the graphics for that. So I said, I really don't care what the graphics look like, to be honest. So last week we talked about the prayer paradox being the tension between being a, being a, a son or a child of God and a servant and how we flesh that out in our prayer life, how we come to God with our requests, but ultimately we submit to his will and whatever he chooses to do. And so we're going to kind of build on that. I want that to be our lens tonight on how we look through things uh, that was last week. This week, I'm going to call this Pray Responsibly. Pray Responsibly. Because a lot of what we took away from last week was a privilege that we have in prayer, a position of sonship that we actually have a place of authority in our prayers that is significant. And a lot of times people come into the faith and they hear about that and maybe they don't know what to do with it or they don't act responsibly with it. And uh, one of my favorite quotes by John Calvin is that zeal without doctrine is like a sword in the hand of a lunatic. So you know people who get saved for the first time and they find out about what it means to be a Christian and they get excited, but they have no structure. They have no structure with how to evangelize, how to pray, how to live the life out. And, and often they uh, become very uh, sporadic and they burn themselves out often. So what I want to do today is maybe build some parameters around prayer, but also talk about how we can pray responsibly. And I'm going to pick up tonight in the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1. We're going to go all the way through 13, but I'm just going to touch on the first 10 verses here real quick. If you have your Bibles with me, you can read with me. I believe they're also going to be up on the, 
on the screen here. And it says, they came to the other side of the sea into the region of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, this is Jesus, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and shackles broken into pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, cutting himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up bowed down before him and shouted with a loud voice. He said, what business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had already been saying, this is Jesus, he had already been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now, there's a lot of information packed in there. We're going to unpack that today. First of all, let's take a look at what's happening. Let's take a look at what's happening here. Now, you would imagine that Jesus comes onto the scene, and this demon-possessed man, at least the way that I understood it when I first read it, was that the demon-possessed person would come out, and he would instantly just, there would be no hold on the person's life anymore because Jesus is so powerful coming into the scene and it would just be completely uh, subdued in that moment by the presence of Jesus. Maybe the demon didn't recognize who Jesus was. You might say that. Some have argued that. But based on the text, he identifies who he is. He says, Jesus, son of the most high God. He knows exactly who this is. In fact, he knows better than a lot of the people who followed Jesus, who weren't even really sure exactly who Jesus was at that time. Jesus hadn't really made a, a strong self-profession, but the demon knew exactly who he was. He had been there in heaven with this person. He knew who this person was. This was Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God. Very important that he identifies him in this way. He recognized Jesus' identity. What's more, he acknowledges that Jesus could overtake him. He had the power to overtake him because he says, do not torment me. He wouldn't say that if he didn't think that Jesus was a much better opponent than, than he was, right? He knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew what he was capable of. He's God standing in front of me. He knew what he could do. But he's not uh, necessarily pleading with him not to do something. He seems to be making an argument. The demon seems to be in some sort of legal debate with Jesus. Jesus confronts the demon, and the demon makes a statement, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, this is another way of saying, what do we have in common? Similar expressions can be found in the Old Testament. For example, 2 Samuel 16, verses 10, 19, and 22, where they mean, basically, the demon was saying to Jesus, why don't you just mind your own business, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Why are you bothering me? Why don't you just go mind your own business? Seems like a strange thing for a demon to say to God, whose business is everything, right? I mean, God's business is, is the universe, right? So isn't it his business to be there? But yet he's challenging that. There seems to be something here. Now, the demon has identified who Jesus is. He understands what Jesus is capable of, but he's questioning Jesus' authority. He's questioning Jesus' authority, which is a strange thing if you think about it. If he knows that he's God, he knows what he's capable of, why would he question his authority here? Now, the demon goes on to say, I implore you 
before God. Also a very interesting thing for him to say, especially because he he understands who this is. This is God. Why would he say, I implore you before God? He's he's saying, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to answer my question based on the most uh, grounded source of an oath that he could possibly make, and that would be to God. He's saying, by God's own standard, explain to me what you're doing here. Now, let's break this picture down. Jesus acknowledged who he is. He acknowledges his power, but he's questioned whether or not Jesus could actually do anything in this situation. In fact, he used the most substantial basis for an oath that he knew. Through his appeal to God, it was strangely ironic But why would that be significant? Why would a demon appeal to God in order to challenge Jesus' authority? So let's think about this a little bit more. Let's break it down here. He knows who he is. He knows what he's capable of, but he's challenging his authority. He's challenging whether Jesus can actually do something in this situation. Let's think about it more practically. Often when something bad goes, happens, we would call the police and we would want the police to come and deal with something. But If you've ever called the police and you have them come to a situation, oftentimes their hands are tied as to what they can actually do. Now, they're a police officer, right? And most of the time they can arrest somebody. They have the authority to do that. And they have the power to do it. Most police officers are capable of arresting someone. But if they're legally not able to, then their hands are tied and they're not going to be able to. And that seems to be what the demon is dealing with here. Now, In order to really understand what's happening here, I want to look at Psalm uh, 115.16. It says, The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth has been given to the sons of man. Here's my point tonight. God is in charge, but he's not necessarily in control. Let me explain that a little bit more. God is in charge. He's not necessarily in control. Let's talk about the universe for a second. We could spend days, weeks, months, probably years debating and just discussing uh, things like open systems theory versus closed systems theory, or free will versus predeterminism, or uh, Arminianism versus Calvinism. And those terms might mean nothing to you. They might mean something to you. My point is we could spend a lot of time talking about things that have been discussed and debated by very intelligent people for a long time. We're not going to do that tonight for the sake of time. But what I will say is this. I want to point out two realities in, in our universe, and our history, that really help us to understand this statement that God is in charge, but he's not necessarily in control. First thing being this, the fall of Satan. Let's look at the fall of Satan. We don't know a lot about this. There are places in Scripture where we kind of pull data from. Uh, there's not an explicit statement of what happened. But most people believe that Lucifer, who that was his original name, Lucifer was an angel of the highest angelic order. In fact, there's belief that he was actually in the throne room of God. He was one of God's most trusted and loyal servants. Some even believe that he was the worship leader of heaven, meaning that he was responsible for bringing praise to holy God. Now, he took his position and believed that it made him better than anyone else, even God, and his pride led to his fall. 
And because of his rebellion, because he rebelled against God, he was cast out of heaven along with one-third of the angels who rebelled with him. Again, there's not an explicit place in Scripture where it talks about that, different places where it's pinpointed, and I think that's a pretty safe bet to kind of understand what happened and how Satan came onto the scene. So Satan is cast out of heaven, and, and the angels go with him. What's the first thing that we should identify here? That God has created his creation with the ability to rebel against him. Why is that significant? Why would God not just create his creation to do exactly what he wants, when he wants, how he wants? Because if you create a creation that does everything exactly the way you want them to, then there is no free worship. And that's what God requires, that someone would choose to worship him. Now, the difference between angels and us is that there's no redemption. Once they fall, they can't come back like you and I have the opportunity to come into redemption. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. His creation has the ability to choose to pursue their own will over the will of God. That's very significant. We also see that the second reality that I want to point out tonight is the creation of man. God created a special being, mankind. In Adam and Eve, who we are all the descendants of, he created mankind a special creation made in his likeness, made in his image, and he gave them a very, very special assignment in that they, I say they, we, Adam and Eve specifically, but us as well as, as, his, as his lineage, um, we were given the task of co-reigning with God. In fact, that scripture that we just read in Psalms, where the heavens are the heavens of God, but the earth was given to the sons of man, means that we have been given dominion over creation. We have been given dominion over the earth. Adam was told to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. He was told that because God had chosen a partnership with Adam as opposed to being this overarching king that just made everything happen. He chose Adam to bring about his reign in the earth. And as Adam was influenced by God, he would rule the earth the way God intended for him to, but Adam had the ability to rebel, which we know that he did. And he did when Satan came on the scene and began to deceive him, began to, to, to cause him not to trust his creator anymore. And in doing that, mankind, who still had dominion over the earth, began to allow that influence to change the way that he ruled over the earth that he was given dominion. Now, when the fall happened, God didn't say, okay, I know I gave you authority, but I'm going to take it right back. He didn't say, now that you've rebelled, you no longer have dominion over the earth. In fact, it was still a part of it. He, man was then given the task of, of cultivating the land. It was harder for him, but he still had that task, that responsibility. The only difference is that now he's no longer being influenced by his creator. He's being influenced by a deceiver. That deceiver who has no right to have dominion over the creation, who has no right to, uh, to rule now has the ear of the one who does, and by influencing him, he rules through mankind. And that's why our world is in the state that it is today. Because throughout time, mankind has chosen to ignore the creator, be influenced by the deceiver, and as he rules through us, as the deceiver rules through us, the world has begun to fall apart, and it looks nothing like what God intended it to be in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean that God is hands-off and that he's just distant watching the world burn. In fact, like I said for my first point, he's in charge, 
He's just not in control. What's the difference here? Let's talk about it. Another two things that I want to point out. The laws of nature is the first one. The laws of nature. Now, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. Now, the word that John uses here when he says, in the beginning was the word, is the Greek word lagos. Now, we translate that to be word, and for good reason. If you were to do a basic translation of lagos, it would be word, and not really just the word itself, but the idea behind the word. So words like uh, logo, a company's logo, our church has a logo that you would see. We put that on there. That is a derivative of that word lagos, and it means the idea behind the message. When you see Bethel Temple's logo on the billboard when you're going down Henderson, you understand, if you have any context of our church, you know what that logo represents. It's on these slides right now, kind of hard to see, in the corner. You know that, that this is a sermon being preached at Bethel Temple. It's the lagos, it's the message behind the words, right? We've translated it to word because that's a really good translation. I personally, and I had done some study on this in seminary, actually wrote a paper on this. I personally feel that should have never been translated. It should have been left as logos. Because I think there was a bigger idea in John's use of that word as opposed to just saying word. Logos is actually a much more philosophically packed concept. I'm going to give a little bit of a definition here real quick. The logos is a principle originating in classical Greek thought, which refers to a universal divine reason, imminent in nature, yet transcending all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and humanity, an external and unchanging truth present from the time of creation. Now, what does John say that logos is? To the philosophers, they've always believed, if you go back to the earliest writings of philosophy, way back before Plato, way before they even called it philosophy, they talked about a logos, something that held everything together. The early, early thinkers thought it was fire, then some thought it was water and air, different things like that. And throughout time, they realized it wasn't quite that simplistic, but they believed there was something, some truth, some universal truth that holds everything together. Now, the philosophers would not have given a name to this. They just believed it was out there somewhere. John takes it a step forward. He says, that Lagos you've been talking about, I know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ who was there at the beginning. Through him all things were created, and nothing that was created was not created without him. He is that binding agent that holds everything together together. When we talk about the laws of nature, the things that cause our world to be predictable and to be stable, we really are talking about Jesus Christ who holds everything together and makes things work in a predictable way. Why does he do that? Because without predictability, we couldn't function. If I, if, if, if there was no predictability, then if I said that we are going to meet at seven o'clock on Wednesday nights, that would mean nothing to anybody in this room. Because there would be no predictability. Seven might come at a different time. But there is a certain sense of predictability in our universe. Stability in our universe. That's what causes things to work. God is actually holding things together. He causes things to work in a certain way. And there are certain rules in nature that cannot be ignored. If I walk off this stage, I'm going to fall. 
I'm going to hit the floor. If I jump from the balcony, no matter how much I want to fly, it's not going to happen because God is still in charge and he has set the world in such a way that things will happen a certain way, no matter how much I will it to be different. God is still in charge. But the way we operate in this world, and that's the second thing that I want to point out, that we are free agents and God has given us a certain amount of autonomy, dominion over the earth to do things a certain way. I can build the world the way that I choose to. I can operate in the world the way that I choose to. Now, if I build something and it goes against the laws of nature, it's going to fall over, right? Because God's still in charge. But I'm in control of how I live in this world. And that's very important because as I am now being influenced by the deceiver, the way that I choose to operate in this world is, leads to death and destruction. That's something very important that we need to understand here. Now, God has chosen to partner with mankind to co-reign over the earth. He's, uh, we're working with God as partners. He set boundaries for how we can do that, but ultimately he is working with us. We are working with him to bring about things in the earth. Um, working against God results in consequences, right? I can choose how I operate. As I, as I said, I could jump off the balcony and I could really, really, really want to fly. I could will that I want to fly, but that's not going to happen. And if I choose to go against the laws that God has put in place, there are consequences. Not just laws of nature, but the laws of, of, of sin and of life. We saw that with Adam and Eve. What did they do? They decided that they didn't trust God anymore. And there were consequences within that decision. Now they've separated themselves from God. They're no longer under his provision. They've they brought death and destruction into their lives and into the world, and that's the world we live in today. That's why there's death and destruction, and that's why families are split apart, and that's why we can't always get along with people who we love because there is death and destruction, and we are not always being influenced by the right source. Now, I know that's a lot of information, and we're going to go and get some more, but now that we have chosen to be influenced by the enemy, the more and more that we allow him to influence us, the more and more we relinquish our dominion over to him. Not that he really has the ability, but by influencing us, he can do whatever he wants through us. Now, in uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, this is Jesus' temptation. Jesus' temptation, after he had been baptized, he went into the wilderness, and now he is... Uh, being tempted by the enemy and he's being tempted in certain ways and there's a whole sermon there but I really want to focus on this this last particular one said and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms in the world at a, a moment at a time this is Satan has led Jesus to, to a high point he's seeing all the kingdoms in the world he says and then the devil said to him he said to Jesus I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I want Therefore, if you worship before me, I shall make it yours. Now, whenever I was a kid and I read this, my first thought was, well, of course he's lying. God is in control of everything, right? No, there, there's some truth to this. Satan's not lying. It has been handed over to him. He had dominion. In, in, in theory, he could have handed it to Jesus. Wouldn't have been the right way to do it. Wouldn't have been the way that Jesus came. But because mankind has relinquished that dominion, to the enemy he actually did have it's been handed over to him and he gets to choose who gives it he wasn't lying in that statement this is very significant when you start talking about world leaders it when world leaders are influenced by the deceiver 
there is a much broader dominion that the enemy has over particular things, and it forms what Scripture calls principalities. And we're going to see here, and this is going to be a long text. Bear with me here. There's a lot of good information here. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 through 21, Daniel has just had a vision. And this vision was so earth-shattering to him that he is just in anguish. He is terrified. He has seen things that no person has ever seen before. He, he's just absolutely spent emotionally, physically, spiritually, and, and so much so that an angel has to come and minister to him. So picking up in verse 10 here, it says, Then behold, a hand touched me and shook me on my hands and knees. And he said to me, Daniel, you are treasured. Understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand at your place. For I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing in my way for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came and helped me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the latter days because the vision pertains to the days still future. Now, he, he shares a vision, which is important, uh, but I, I want to touch on some other components of this. So as he goes through, he shares this vision. And then lastly, he says, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, so I am leaving. And behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you that what is recorded in the writing of truth Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So based on the context of this passage, we see that there are two geographical principalities that are actually able to stop this messenger of heaven, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, is actually keeping the angel from delivering the message. This angel is on a mission from God, and he is still able to be stopped or at least uh, stalled in order for that angel to make it to Daniel for, I believe it said 21 days he's able to do that. And it requires that Michael, who's an archangel and arguably at the same level as Lucifer, has to come and actually fight this battle with this angel in order for that message to be delivered to Daniel. He's saying that from the moment that you sat down and started praying, God answered it. But it took me this long to get to you because the prince of Persia, which is a, which is a spiritual principality, and the, and the, the, the uh, prince of Greece stopped me from being able to get to you. That's a very, very loaded, that sounds like something out of a book, doesn't it? Well, it is. It's the Bible. But it sounds like something that would be written. It sounds fictional. It sounds like it would be made up, but this is true. We believe that Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is an account that an angel is telling Daniel, and it gives us a glimpse past the flesh and blood things that we deal with, past the arguments that we have with a person, and we think that's where it stops. There is more happening. And whenever a, 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 a world leader is being influenced by the enemy, and that dominion is spread so much 
further than just the sphere that we have influence, then those principalities become very strong. And we wonder sometimes why certain nations are still unreached by Jesus Christ. We wonder why certain nations are unable for, for more morality to be legislated because there are principalities, there are spiritual forces at play that keep those things from happening because mankind has relinquished his dominion over to the enemy. And in doing that, the enemy is able to rule through those decisions. And I know that sounds bleak and it sounds terrible, but we're going to get somewhere with this. Because we have dominion, we wage war with the enemy every single time we pray. I want you to think about this for a moment. You might think that your prayer life is something personal. It's not. It might be something that you do in your private time. It might be something you do when no one else is looking. But when you pray, angels are actually coming to, to your aid. They are actually bringing the answer to the prayer that you're saying. There is a much bigger picture going on than you sitting in your living room praying through a list of prayers. It may not feel like it. You may never know what's actually going on. But Daniel 10 gives us a glimpse to what that looks like, what's actually happening here. Now, I want to back up for a second because I think this is important. I wasn't planning to talk about this tonight, but I think it's important. That passage gives us a glimpse past the flesh and blood, like I said. It shows us the principalities. And I want you to understand that when you deal with conflict between people, when you deal with conflict uh, with family or with uh, people in, in the church, maybe, yeah, that happens. And people in the church, conflict issues that arise, somebody at work, I want you to understand that there is a bigger picture taking place. There are principalities at work. However, I don't want you to misunderstand me and say that we are not still responsible for the things that we do. Because where does the dominion actually lie? Who was it given to? It was given to us. And even though we allow the enemy to influence us and we allow the enemy to do things, he's still using us because we're the only ones that can carry it out. And let me tell you that there's enough depravity inside of me and there's enough depravity inside of you and every other person that all the enemy really has to do is deceive us just a little bit and we take over from there. The destruction in the world today is not the enemy coming up with these horrible, horrible things. No, we already have those ideas. And when the enemy deceives us and speaks to us and, 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 and uh, influences us, all he's doing is tapping what's already inside of us and making it go viral, if you will, the buzzword of today, making it go across the world. It's already inside of us. We are very, very much responsible for the things that we do. So there is no, the devil made me do it. No, the devil may have pushed you to do it, but it was already there. So my point being, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. If we have done something, if we've hurt somebody, if we constantly find ourselves in the same issues we have to take a step back and realize that the enemy is simply using what was already in us from the beginning now like i said i know this is bleak we're going to get somewhere with it we're going to jump back into mark chapter 5 verses now 11 through 13 so now we're going to back up going to recap just a little bit jesus comes he confronts this demon the demon says i know who you are i know what you can do but you don't have authority here and you don't have authority, and he, he uses God's name because God was the one that gave it to mankind. He says, you have no authority because you gave it up. You gave it up to mankind. I'm influencing mankind. And what a great picture 
of the enemy influencing. This is a man who is completely subdued by demonic spirits. In fact, when Jesus said, what is your name? That's, that, the spirit said, our name is Legion. Didn't even give a name because there are, we are many. There are many of us here. Said day and night, night and day. He would scrape himself. He would scream. He was completely overrun. What a great picture of what the enemy has done to mankind as he influences us, as he takes over, as he subdues us, and he rules through us. Here Jesus is confronting this man. I don't think that Jesus did anything by mistake. I think that this was very intentional to show an illustration of what he's trying to say and what he's trying to do here. The demon says, you have no authority here. But the next thing that Jesus does, he doesn't argue with him on that. He doesn't try to bring out the, 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 the cosmic law book and explain it to him. He simply commands him out. Now, what he commands him to do is not important. It's the fact that he commanded him to do it. The demon said, what business do you have with me? Mind your own business. Go do something else. You can't do this. But then Jesus was actually able to cast him out. Why? Now, very important to understand. Jesus, 100% God. He came to earth as God. No denying that. No debate here at all. But I do believe that this encounter, he was, he was acting out not so much in his God nature, but in his man nature as a man who was completely right with God. As a man who knew where his influence came from, who was influenced by the right source. In fact, when you look at the temptation, he was try the enemy was trying to influence him, and he pointed back to the only one that he should have been listening to in the first place. The one that Adam should have never stopped listening to. The one that Adam, and if, if he would have been uh, influenced by that creator, there wouldn't have been a fall in the first place. Because he chose to listen to the deceiver instead of the creator and dominion was now influenced by the enemy. So Jesus, being in right standing with God, took his rightful place as the, as the new Adam, as the perfected Adam, the one who was without flaw, and he cast the demon out. Why? Because mankind was, was given dominion over the earth. Jesus was the only one capable, because he was also fully God, to come to earth, stand before the enemy, and say, look, I'm both. You can't fight me. You are my business. And he showed him who was boss. He cast him out. And in doing that, he took back dominion over the earth. That's not the only place he did it, but it was an illustration of what he did on the cross. It was an illustration of the things that he did. And the enemy began to realize for the first time, okay, this is the real deal. This is really happening. We are losing influence over mankind. We don't have the influence that we used to have. And I, I, what I really like about this passage, it says, Now there was a large herd of pigs feeding nearby in the mountains. And the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. I think that's, that's such a great statement. Jesus had to give them permission to do what they wanted to do. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, Jesus was the son of the Most High God. He stood before the demon. The demon said, mind your own business. He said, you are my business. He took dominion. Now, Remember that Jesus came not only as God, but as man. And Jesus being perfect without sin, he reclaimed that authority. He commanded we have the opportunity, you and me today, if we have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if we walk in the resurrection of power of Jesus Christ, our bloodline is no longer that of Adam who fell, but it's that of Jesus Christ who succeeded, who overcame. That is our bloodline. We have been given dominion back. Now, 
I know what you're saying. Why do things still happen the way they do? Because we still haven't quite learned how to listen to the right voice. We still haven't learned how to be influenced by our creator. And we often find ourselves being influenced by the deceiver who still is able to tap into the things that are still in us. The corruption that we still have that we're working through that's being sanctified. And he's able to use that to still bring destruction. But as we get closer to Christ, as we get closer to God, as we, as we come and we pray, finally coming back to the point of pray, when we, to, to prayer, when we pray, we become like God in our thinking. We begin to pray the things that God prays. We begin to think the way that God thinks. We begin to act the way that God acts. We begin to be influenced by him and how it was supposed to be in the beginning. God is able to rule through us, partner with us as his original plan always was. Now, I know that's a very heavy topic because now our prayers are more than just a personal exercise. Growing up, I often heard people say things like, prayer doesn't just change things, it really changes people. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. Like I just said, when we pray, it does cause us to think more like God. When we pray, it does cause us to, to pray the Father's heart. But I want to be very clear today that prayer does more than change us. It actually changes things. Because we've been given dominion, because we have authority in Jesus Christ, our prayers actually change things. Now we see this in Scripture how important prayer is. And I want to touch on Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 29 through 31. It says, The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. And they have oppressed the poor and needy and have oppressed the stranger without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the Lord so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. So I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with my fire and my wrath. I have brought their way upon their head, hand, or heads, declares the Lord. Now, it's very important that we note that God is looking for someone, as he says, stands in the gap. He's looking for someone who stands in the gap. Now, what does that mean? It could have a lot of different meanings, but I think there's another passage a little bit earlier in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 10 through 14, it says, So now... Leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make, a great, and I will make you a great nation. This is, this is God talking to Moses. Moses then pleaded with the Lord and said, Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you've, who you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians talk saying, what, saying with evil uh, motives he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent of doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented of his harm, which he said he would do to his people. And we see two parallels here. We see God's wrath burning against people who are rebelling against him in both cases. But in the first case that we saw in Ezekiel, there's no one in the gap. There's no intercessor. There's no one praying. There's no one pleading. And the God's wrath was brought on the people. But in the case of Exodus and Moses' situation, God tells Moses what he's going to do. And Moses begins to intercede for the people. He begins to plead with the people. He begins to say, God, don't do this. They're your people. You've chosen them. And there's a lot of reasons why, why God interacted with Moses in this way. But the point is this. There was no one in the gap 
in the, in the Ezekiel passage, and there's someone in the gap in the Exodus passage. Here, prayer is vitally important, and we see that the lack of an intercessor leads, causes things to, leads to things happening that might have been able to be stopped if somebody would have stood in the gap and prayed. Moses stood in the gap. He was an intercessor. What we saw in Ezekiel is that God looked for an intercessor, but he didn't find one, so his wrath was brought against them. Now, I want to be clear here. There are theologies out there. There are beliefs out there. One example would be progressive theology that believes that God is changed in his nature by what we pray, that we actually change the mind of God, that he's growing and he's, he's changing. Some even would go as far as to say that God improves by observing our collective morality. I am not making those claims here tonight. I am not making that statement. I'm not saying that at all. There's some really strange stuff out here, and I want to be clear, I'm not making that claim. What I am saying is that God chooses to partner with us, bringing about his plan on the earth. Because he has chosen to do this, our prayer actually has the capacity to quicken, slow down, stall, and even stop certain things that would take place otherwise. Why? Because God expects us to do our part. He's called us to do it. He's given us dominion. He's he's using us to rule the earth through Last week we discussed the Lord's Prayer. One portion of it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Point being, prayer doesn't just change our attitude toward God's will, it actually releases it onto the earth. Now one question that I want you to think about tonight is this. If we believe that prayer is important, do we equally believe that a lack of prayer is detrimental? If we pat ourselves on the back every time our prayers result in a lost person coming home, do we equally count the cost for those who perish because we chose not to? Now, I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every person who is not saved is contingent on your prayers or not. God is fully capable of saving people, but he's choosing us to pray for the lost. If there's someone who you've been praying for over and over and over in your life that you want to see come to Christ, don't stop. You don't know how close you are. You don't know how close they are. You don't know what's happening in the big picture that you just can't see. You don't know what's happening. That that could be that last moment. That could be the last thing you need. And if you stop, it might be enough to drive them away. It doesn't mean that every sick person who isn't healed is a result of us not praying hard enough. But I do wonder what would happen if we made prayer a priority. I do wonder if we, if we said we're not just going to meet once a week and pray for an hour, but we actually made it a part of our lifestyle. I wonder if it would become the most important part of what our church does. Uh, I heard a quote by Leonard Ravenhill. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was a, a great evangelist. And he said, I really like this. He said, Sunday, the, the, the crowd on Sunday morning determines how popular your church is. The crowd on Sunday night determines how popular your pastor is and the crowd on Tuesday night prayer determines how popular God is and I think that's a great point because the church today and I could go into a whole nother sermon and I I should sometime the, the the church what did Jesus say when he cleared the temple he said my house shall be called a house of prayer not a house of events not a house of outreach not a house of evangelism a house of prayer that should be our top priority and oftentimes it's not it is not the most important thing we do and I wonder I just wonder what would happen if we prioritized prayer, if we made it the most important thing that we do, if we didn't just relegate it to what we do right before we have a meal, but if we actually took the time to pray for the people who are lost, to pray for our community, what could happen? It's something to think about. It's a question that we need to to look at. 
I know our, our, uh, our theme for this year is each one bring one, and I think it's a good one. I think we need to. I mean, really, if you think about it, if each of us brought a person, we would double our, our church attendance overnight, and that's a great thing. But it's not going to matter if we bring one, if we're not praying for them, for God to do something in their lives when they come in. Sadly, we don't have a framework for understanding that type of prayer. So the question, another question that I want to ask tonight is, does your theology actually make room for biblically-based prayer? I mentioned earlier that we could spend many lessons discussing the difference between Calvinism, Calvinism and Arminianism, and those might be words that you're familiar with, maybe you're not. Here, here's what I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in, on this, but I do think it's important that I, I show this. Calvinism is a belief that God has predestined an elect people, and those elect people will be saved and the rest won't. And we don't know who they are. Um, our job is just to go out, preach the gospel, and have them respond to it. That's a very rough summary of it. There's a lot to it, but that's a pretty good summary. Arminianism is kind of a response to that that says, no, we all have a free will, and we can choose God freely. Now, in our church, as an AG church, our theology would support more of Arminianism. We believe that people have a free will to choose God, that God hasn't just made a decree, and some are in, some are out, as some would understand Calvinism, but it is, it's the idea that we have the choice to do that, the free will, which fits a lot of what we were talking about today. Um, our theology is one that allows for choices, one which we are free agents, able to rebel against God. Uh, so why don't we pray that way? Have you ever noticed that a lot of times our prayers are kind of with this mindset of, well, whatever God's going to do is going to happen anyway? Well, that doesn't really support and that's not consistent with the rest of our theology. Our theology is that we evangelize because there's lost people, and unless we go do the work, then they won't hear the gospel. But we don't always pray that way. We don't always pray with a responsibility. We don't always pray with an obligation that if we don't pray, things that should have happened may not, because God's chosen to partner with us, because God's chosen to rule through us. We might have this idea that people can come in the door, they can throw themselves at the altar, and they can make a decision for Christ, but we don't always pray with that in mind. We kind of have this idea of, well, I'm going to pray because it's what I've been asked to do. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to be a good little Christian and do what I'm supposed to do, pray my, my list, because that's, that's what my, my devotional tells me to do. But at the end, I kind of believe that God's just going to do whatever he wants to do anyway. And in some regard, that's true, but he uses us to bring those things about. If our theology doesn't allow for prayer that actually changes things, then is it really effective? Is it really powerful? I'm here today to say that I believe that prayer actually does something. I believe that God calls us to pray, not because it's something nice to do, not because it makes us good little Christians, but because it's actually us standing up into the dominion that we were supposed to be in from the beginning, and that's how God chooses to rule the earth. That's the power of prayer. That's what it is. Now, a lot of times people, especially in, in, in uh, well, I'll say this. Another reason why we should support this is because we're a Pentecostal church. We believe that God still moves today. We believe that the Holy Spirit is still active today and the gifts of the Spirit are active today. And let me tell you, if you believe that, but you don't believe in the power of prayer, then something's not aligning because that's what it's all about. If you believe that the Holy Ghost is inside of you, prompting you to pray for people, prompting you to pray for things, but you don't think that things can actually happen, then something's misaligned. Now, years ago, there were a lot of books written about how miracles were impossible. They were illogical. They didn't make sense. 
Well, if you really think about it, they make a lot of sense. Because if there is something holding, holding creation together, that logos, Jesus Christ, and he makes predictability, then all he has to do is choose to do things a little bit different in that moment, and we have a miracle. We have something that wouldn't otherwise happen, but he's chosen to do it. Why does he do that? Because our prayer actually moves the heart of God and causes him to do things a certain way. As we pray what he, cho- what he wants us to pray, as we bring about things that he wants us to bring about. Now, I think anytime you talk about prayer and effective prayer and the power of prayer, the question always gets brought up, well, what about unanswered prayer? What happens whenever I pray fervently? What happens when I pray in faith and nothing happens? And some of you, I, I won't go into the story, but some of you know my, my personal story about losing my dad, believing that he was going to be healed, having faith that he would be healed, and then he wasn't. That shook me because that, to me, was like, well, what, what about powerful prayer? It didn't happen, right? But I want to make this statement very clear today. Unanswered prayer does not make prayer ineffective. If we are co-heirs, then why does it seem like we're so often faced with disappointment, deferred hope? If prayer moves the heart of God, shouldn't that mean that prayer should be answered? I don't want you to mistake that what I'm saying is that prayer becomes a wishing well. We get whatever we want, with, we get whatever we want as long as we pray the right thing. Just looking at Daniel 10, we see that answered prayer may be stalled by principalities working against us. In fact, there are many factors involved. Just to name a few, could be the faith of the, the person being prayed for, faith of the person praying, the persistence of prayer. Did you just pray once, or is it something that you've really sought after? The number of people praying, human free will, angelic free will, the number and strength of the spiritual agents involved, and the presence of sin. Most importantly is this, the will of God. Now, when theologians talk about uh, the will of man versus the will of God, they often speak in absolutes as though man having a free will somehow eliminates God from being able to have a free will. But I want to make it clear that I don't believe that those two have to be that way. I believe that we have a will, God's given us that, and he's given it to us because he himself has a will. He chooses for things to be a certain way. There are certain things that he wants to do. Last week, we talked about how Jesus models this paradox of the son's servant, where Jesus says, Father, take this cup from me, but if you choose not to, your will be done. He came to him as a, as, a, as a son who asked a very bold request. Father, change your plans. But if this is the only way, then so be it. That's, a, that's the paradox there. That's the tension of us coming to him as, as sons and, and being humble as servants. And what's happening here is that, yes, that is what Jesus wanted. He did not want to die in that moment. But he understood that there was a much larger will There was a much larger thing. And specifically when we start talking about God's redemptive will, God wanting to save his people, there is nothing that can stop that. There is nothing in heaven or hell, you or me, there's nothing that can stop that redemptive will. Jesus knew that. He knew that even though he didn't want that in the moment, his redemptive will would win out. One way that we can understand this, and I think part of the issue is that when we start talking about our will versus God's will, we kind of get this idea that uh, maybe God's will is the same as ours in terms of uh, we aren't always strong-willed people, right? Some people are, some people aren't. But God's will is very different. God is much bigger than us. God is much more uh, resilient than us. And his will cannot be stopped when he sets his mind at something. He has set his mind on saving humanity. And nothing can stop that. 
Nothing can stop that from happening. And I think the best illustration is to say that God's will is like a freight train. How do we pray when God has already made up his mind on what he's going to do? Now, if you've ever seen a freight train, which as I wrote that, I started thinking, I'm writing this in Cleburne, Texas. Of course you've seen a train, right? If you've seen a train and you've seen one barreling down the tracks, if you've seen one, my my son loves to watch trains, so sometimes we'll stand there, and they are coming at this incredible speed, this incredible speed flying down the tracks. Nothing is going to stop it. I know that's a little bit uh, of an exaggeration, but really it, it would take a lot And if you've ever seen a video clip, or hopefully not in person, of a a car being hit by a train, that car does not stand a chance at stopping that train. That train is going to plow through. Picture that as the will of God. The will of God cannot be stopped. It might be slowed down at times. It might be be stalled for for a little bit, but in, 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 in the grand scheme, it is plowing through. When we pray... When we come into alignment with the will of God, we are like those on, the, on that train car shoveling coal into the furnace. Shoveling coal into the furnace, which makes the train move faster, faster, faster. Our prayers have the ability to bring about God's will quicker, to bring about God's will more effectively. That's why the church exists. We are the vehicle that brings the redemptive message of Jesus Christ to the world. That's why we need to pray. Maybe this is new for you tonight. Maybe you've never thought about prayer in these perspectives. Maybe as I'm talking, you're thinking, wow, I really do have a theology that really doesn't support prayer in my life. I do kind of think that God's just got it all figured out and my prayers are just kind of a nice thing that I do. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe, maybe you've really never given it much thought at all. I'm here to tell you that scripture is full, full of examples of how prayer and the lack of prayer equally are important and detrimental to things happening the way that they should. It doesn't mean that God is unable to step in. In fact, he does often, but he chooses to use us. He chooses to work through us. That's the plan and the partnership that he put into place. So as I wrap up tonight, I have three things that I just want us to think about as we close in prayer. Let's rethink the way we pray. When you, next time you go into prayer, maybe you do that in the mornings, maybe you do that in the evenings, maybe you don't do it at all. The next time you pray, Think about what's actually happening. It is not just you alone in a bedroom or alone on your, on your lunch break. It's not just you uh, with your checklist. You are in the midst of a cosmic war between God and his enemy for the souls of humanity, for God's will to be done. And as you are praying, there are things happening that you will probably never know about. You will probably never see, but it is not just you alone in a room. There is something much larger. Let's change the way we pray. Let's actually believe that our prayers have the power to do something. The second thing is let's see prayer as a responsibility. It's not just a nice thing we do. It's not just us being obedient. It is something that we are called to do and it's a, it's, a, it's a job. If you're a believer tonight, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have, a, you have a responsibility to pray. He has chosen you. The reason he redeemed you, the reason he gave authority and dominion back to you is so that you could be influenced by him and bring about his will on the earth. Let's see it as a, as a responsibility and not just a privilege. And lastly, I want to pray tonight for anyone in this room who has prayed and not had that prayer answered, who's been discouraged who's felt like prayer is ineffective, who's felt like maybe God doesn't care, maybe you're too insignificant to be, to be heard, let me tell you that God does not see you as insignificant. 
He didn't go to the cross and buy your freedom, give you authority and dominion because he believed you were insignificant. I remember having this conversation with someone not too long ago, and they said, they said, I, I think that God is often disappointed with me. And I said, no, he's not, because he knew everything you'd do, and he still went to that cross. He didn't just do it so that you could feel good about yourself. He didn't just do it so that you could one day stand before God and say, hey, I got my ticket. It's not why he did it. He did it because he has an assignment for you, and that assignment involves prayer. So tonight, as we close in prayer, I want you to search your heart. If this, is a, if this is an area in your life that you need to step to a next level, maybe God is calling you to be more fervent in your prayer, to see prayer as more of a responsibility, not just something that you do. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to show you, to reveal to you what, he, what he's calling you to do, what prayer is really supposed to look like. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. It's a heavy word, it's a deep word, but it's, it's your word. And I pray tonight that you would allow it to sink into us. It wouldn't be something that when we walk out those doors we forget, but it would be something that eats at us. It would be something that bothers us, that, that, that keeps us up at night. Just trying to keep it out. And I pray that as we struggle with it, as we, as we fight with it, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to teach us. As the teacher, we know that's his job, to teach us, to, bring, to lead us into all truth. I pray that you would lead us into a place where prayer becomes the priority where prayer becomes a responsibility, that we would understand that there is something much larger than ourselves, much larger than our church, much larger than our city happening when we pray. I pray for each person here tonight who has prayed and not received an answer. I wish I had answers for that. I wish I could explain why that didn't happen. I see in, in Scripture that there are things happening that we couldn't possibly understand. There are things going on that we couldn't possibly even begin to wrap our minds around. Prayer is complicated. It's complex. But we're called to do it nonetheless. And I pray that you would give us an urgency that even if we don't see the answers that we're looking for, that you'd still prompt us to pray because you called us to pray. I pray that you would put something in our heart that helps us to know that maybe our prayers will be answered long past our own lifetime. Maybe our prayers are bigger than we could ever even understand within the years that we're here on earth. I pray that you would help us to understand that prayer is generational. It's something that transcends just our lifetime, just the things we say. Call us so we do it. And I pray that you would put it in our heart. You would help us to love it. Pray that time to pray and to seek after you, to seek what you want us to pray and to pray those things, that we would be those people on the, on the, on the freight train shoveling the coal into the furnace, making the train, your will, go faster and faster and faster. Unstoppable. Because you called us to partner with pray all those things tonight in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for another awesome Wednesday night. Uh, we'll be back again next Wednesday. Then Pastor Michael will be back. Uh, we look forward to seeing you Sunday, 830, 1045, Sunday school in the middle at 930. We'd love for you to join us. Thank you so much.